Amen. Ready? My title for you today is In the World, But Not of It. In the World, But Not of It. This is a discussion that people of the Christian faith have had from the inception of our faith. How does one live a life that pleases God in the midst of a generation that lives lives that isn't pleasing to God? After all, the Apostle John states it clearly and emphatically in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, church, it is clear, we aren't to love the world if we love and therefore identify with the world how can we simultaneously identify with Christ and identify with Christianity? Let me remind you what they did to Jesus. You will not be popular. You will not be favored. They will kill you if they have the chance. Jesus said it emphatically, plainly. He said, listen. If they persecute you, remember, they persecuted me first. There's an identity factor here, friends. And the identity factor is this. If we identify with Jesus, we will be treated like Jesus was treated. But if we don't identify with Jesus in every group, in every clique, in every faction of the world that's out there, pats us on our heads and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You can be assured that God is not. You have to decide today, not Monday, today, whom you will serve. Will you be in the world but not of it? Or are you going to try to negotiate that line? As we read Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see two points that seem to rise to the surface, each of which is going to tell us this truth. While we are in the world, we are not to identify with the world. We are to live a distinct life, a unique life, a life that makes us different from anything and everyone around us. Now, we might have similarities. I put pants on today. I put deodorant on today. I brought my wife to church with me today. And there are a lot of couples out there that don't believe in Jesus that put pants on and take their spouse with them wherever they go. But that is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about these superficial commonalities. We're talking about spiritual issues. This is the dividing line, friends. This is where people are distinguished from each other. Not whether or not they wear this style of clothing or that style of clothing, but whether or not they are baptized in Christ Jesus. That is what makes us distinct from the world. That is what makes us a group of people who are in it, but not what? Of it. I'm going to share with you two simple points that I believe come up to the surface in this passage. Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 through 15. And having wet your palate this morning, I want to begin with our first point, which is verses 1 through 8. The priests of the Lord. The priests of the Lord. Of the Lord. First of all, we learn about these ministers or priests of the Lord. In the Old Testament, that's what ministers were called priests. 
This is part of the design of the Mosaic law, and the priests were responsible for a handful of things, and this is what we're going to look at under our first point this morning. Look at the text again, if you would, please. It says the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, there were 12 tribes, one of which was Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder, the cheeks, the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand and minister... In the name of the Lord, him and his sons of all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose and ministers in the name of the Lord is God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have what kind of portions to eat? Equal portions besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. Now, There's a couple of things that I want to note under this idea of the priests of the Lord. A few questions that I think are important to ask. First, who were they? It's our first of a few questions. First, who were they? Who were these priests? Well, this is a fairly straightforward question if you're familiar with your Old Testament or your Torah or Pentateuch, as it's called, the first five books of the Bible. Then you know this answer very readily. They were men of the tribe of Levi, that's why they are called the Levitical priesthood, who were set aside by God to do the work of the ministry as it was prescribed in the law. That's who they were. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12 says, He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointing him to consecrate him. You see, Aaron, who began with Moses, was set apart of the tribe of Levi to be the religious representation of God to the people. This was God's design. No one passed out a ballot. No one engaged in a vote. This was God's decision. Levi will be the tribe that represents me to the people. Aaron being the first. His sons after him. And there was a process that took place. Since there wasn't a vote and since there weren't ballots passed out, Aaron was initiated by the Lord, but this initiation took place publicly. Now, you know from all the older movies that you've watched and the history that you know, there wasn't electricity back then, right? So in order for a lamp to burn, it had to have oil. And part of the anointing process The consecration, if you will, of these priests was they would pour the oil on their head and in so doing sort of say to that person, now you're going to burn for the Lord. Now you will be a light for the Lord. You have been anointed. You have been consecrated. The word consecrated essentially means dedicated, set apart. For what? to do the work of the Lord as it's prescribed in the law. In this instance, it's full-time work for God, 
Full-time work for God and nothing else. Second, what were they to do? That's who they were. Secondly, what were they to do? Well, it not only says some here in Deuteronomy chapter 18, but a variety of other places in the Old Testament. Now that we know who they are, now we must ask, what were they to do? Simply enough, they were to operate the Mosaic law in the religious realm for the people. They were to take the law of Moses that Moses received from the Lord and operate it on behalf of the people. They were to lead them. They were to guide them. They oversaw the festivals and the feasts, the sacrifices, and, of course, the preaching and the teaching and the instruction of the law of God. It says in chapter 18, verse 5, for example, the Lord your God has chosen him that is to say, the the priest, out of all the tribes, for what purpose? To stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons after him. So that is who they were, and that is what they were supposed to do. So the priests were a group of people who were chosen by God to represent God, his truth, and his will to the people. If you're taking notes, that's something that you're going to want to write down. I'm going to say that again. The priests were a group of people who were chosen by God to represent God, his truth, and his will to the people. I need to say this. Biblically speaking, there aren't priests today like there were priests in the Old Testament because Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law and is himself the only priest that is required for us to get to God. There is no other priest necessary for you to get to God. None. Now, in the Roman Catholic scheme, there is a requirement of priests. I bring this to your attention because we're in South Florida and there is a lot of Roman Catholicism in South Florida. Perhaps that's in your history or perhaps you have friends and family who are involved in that history. The reason it is an integral part of their system is because they believe that Peter was the first pope. They believe that Peter was set up as the first pope by Christ. They believe that every pope subsequent to Peter carries therefore with him the same representation and authority that Peter did. So the interesting aspect of the Roman Catholic scheme is this. The reason confession to a priest is an integral part of the sacraments that lead to saving grace in a Roman Catholic system is because in a Roman Catholic system, when you are confessing to a priest, you are confessing to Christ because the priest is connected to the Pope and the Pope is Christ's representative on earth. We don't hold to the Roman Catholic scheme. Not only is it not found in the Bible, but it doesn't make sense theologically in view of what is found in the Bible. What we find in the Bible is very clear. There are no more priests. Jesus Christ is our priest. If you want to get to God, you don't have to find a priest somewhere. You just need to go through Jesus. Anyone and everyone. Now, I'm not 
saying all of our Roman Catholic friends should be ashamed of themselves, but what they're in, the system that they're participating in, does not honor God. And it does not honor Christ. And it does not honor his word. And you, church, amen, if you're listening, you need to take a stand on what is right. We've got to stop negotiating on things that aren't taught in the Bible so that people who know us and we know don't have feelings that are hurt. Truth is truth. It doesn't care about your feelings. Truth is what it is. From Pluto to here, regardless of the time, regardless of the people involved, the truth is the truth is the truth. And what we need to do is speak the truth in love. And in this instance... The truth is this, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Christ appeared as our high priest for the good things to come. Or Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. New covenant. Today we participated in the event that initiated and solidified and guaranteed the new covenant. And that event was the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we don't do it because of Joe. We do it because of Christ. I minister to you, but your relationship with Jesus Christ is not dependent upon me. Jesus is the only priest, and you can go directly to him. This is such an emphatic point in Christian theology, in part because Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are teachers, and there are leaders, and there are preachers, and there are evangelists, etc., of course. But our faith is in Christ. Our faith is not in them. So Christ is the only priest and mediator that anyone needs in order to get to God. So there aren't priests, while there are priests today, they aren't priests like there were yesterday. In the Old Testament scheme and the New Testament scheme, they are different. You do not find priests in the New Testament. You find priests in the New Testament under the Jewish tradition. But you do not find priests in the New Testament when Christians get together. There are no priests, none, not one. And you say, because you are the smartest church in South Florida, well then, Joe, why are there so many groups of denominations and Christian slants that have priests? Oh, you see what happens? When people wander away from the word of God, tradition becomes the rule. And when tradition becomes the rule, you blaspheme God. That's not what I'm saying. That's what Matthew chapter 15 says. You blaspheme the word of God by your tradition. That's Jesus. The reality of the matter is there is one priest, no priest in the New Testament in the Christian tradition except Jesus Christ. He is our priest, and there are no other priests. However, I can make that claim and argument. On the one hand, there is another aspect that we have to appreciate. Namely, the New Testament calls Christians priests. 
So while there is not a singular person to whom we must go in order to have a relationship with God, Jesus is that mediator. And he enables his people by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to be his representatives in the world. Look at this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The apostle Peter says that Christians are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the apostle John says that Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests. Did you hear that, guys? This is, I just yelled for five minutes about there being no priests except Jesus, right? But there's another aspect to New Testament teaching which says, while there is no mediator except Jesus Christ between God and man, we are all priests. All of us say, I'm a priest. Oh, some of you are more excited than others. Some of you, are, you, want, you don't want that job description. You didn't sign up for it. But it's not your choice. If you're in Christ, then you are a priest. So, so here's the question. Well, if I'm a priest, what does that mean? Well, we've already decided who a priest is and what a priest is to do. What does a priest do? A priest represents God, his truth and his will to the people. My question for you today is, church, now that you know that if you are a Christian, you are a priest, my question is, are you representing God, his truth, and his will to the people? Well, you might be saying, well, no, I haven't been, but this is really the first time I've ever heard this. Good. I told you not tomorrow. Today. We're starting today. We're not going to procrastinate when it comes to applying what we have learned today. We're not going to apply it tomorrow. We're going to do it now. Starting when you leave here today, you are applying this truth everywhere I go and with every word I say, I am representing God, his truth, and his will to the people. I am part of a royal priesthood along with anyone who is in Christ. In that sense, we are all priests, which is a little intimidating, isn't it? They say, maybe I'm not doing such a good job. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're doing a fantastic job. Regardless of whether you're doing a good job or not, that will not change this truth. The truth is this. If you are in Christ, you are a representative of God. You are a priest to Jesus Christ. As far as the office of priest is concerned, however... The office of priest, we don't have priests today. We don't have priests today. We have pastors. As it regards the office, we don't have priests, we have pastors. Now, the pastor of a church doesn't require an animal sacrifice from members, but they do ask for a financial sacrifice from its members, a practical sacrifice from its members, so, for example, if you're interested in becoming a member of our church, we're happy to, go through our, happy to have you go through our membership class so that you can look at our membership contract and decide whether or not you want to make the commitment that is required to be a member of this community. Anyone can come to this church. Absolutely anyone. We invite everybody, and we encourage everyone to come. 
But there are a lot of people who attend our church and they say, Joe Myra is my pastor, and in reality, I'm not. Because you haven't made a commitment to me and your brother's here, and I haven't made a commitment to you. Membership is a commitment. Membership comes with responsibilities, and it comes with rights that you don't have if you aren't a member. Some of you have been coming here week in and week out, and you call First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge your church, and you call Joe Myrie your pastor. But in truth, we're not. You're still a guest. And we love that you're here. But we want you to make the commitment that you ought to. If you are fed by spiritual things, Paul said, is it such a big deal if you invest in material things? The answer to that question, of course, is no. reason we have a membership class is because when you go through the membership class, you get to know me, I get to know you, and we get to know each other in regards to what rights and responsibilities there are for members. The reason we do that is simple. We have principles that we believe in. Amen? We have principles that... Oh, nobody's... All of a sudden, everyone's afraid. (laughs) Patty, do we have principles that we believe in? Thank you. Listen, if we're here together worshiping Jesus and you join our church and you say, I'm going to give to the church, great. I don't know if you give or how much you give. We have a finance team that takes care of that, but that's part of the covenant. You serve at your church. You give to your church because that is the commitment that you're making. But you also get a commitment from the church itself and from its pastor. That's part of the rights and responsibilities. But let's say for argument's sake that we have that. And you say, okay, I'm learning that I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a representative of Jesus Christ and, and I'm going to be a fellowshiped member of First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge. Joe is my pastor, and and I am a member of his church, and we are brothers and sisters in this church, and then you decide to go over here to Sandbar and have four hurricane number fives or whatever these things are, and then you start acting a fool on karaoke night. Some of you are laughing because you remember this story. And then I get a phone call because you think I don't know. And I get a phone call, and they go, hey, did you, did you see Mike Cruz the other day? After four hurricanes, and he was up there singing some song, and then was acting a fool. Then I say to Mike, I go, hey, let's have a conversation. And the conversation goes like this. We've got a commitment, you and I, to each other and to the Bible and to the Lord we serve. I've heard stuff about your behavior that doesn't reflect on our faith or on our principles as members. And then Mike says, you know what? You're right. I appreciate you sharpening me. Let's move. Okay, we're done. But if he tells me to get the kite out of my trunk and go fly it, his membership is being called into question because he made a covenant that he's decided he does not want to honor. It is our responsibility to protect what we believe. And we are going to have people come into our church who don't believe and hold to the principles that we believe and hold to and then start swaying us one way or another. So if you come into our church and you were, you know, over here at the sandbar the other night and you had 16 hurricanes and you're here Sunday morning, I don't care. 
But you come in and you go, listen, we've been cohabitating and we're not really married, but we want you to marry you. No, I'm not your pastor. I don't do weddings outside of our membership. That's a right. That's a privilege. I require five premarital counseling sessions before a wedding. There are rights and privileges that you get as a member that you do not get if you're not. There's a commitment that's required to be here. And we live in a generation, we live in a generation that is terrified of commitment. The commitment that they make is shallow, almost unimportant. It's called a commitment, but when push comes to shove and the rubber meets the road, there really is no commitment to be found which is why we hold to the principles of membership as they are reflected in the Bible. I am to behave a particular way. You are to behave a particular way. This is what we believe. Now, if you're a guest with us and you aren't a member, we love you. We love that you're here. We love that you're here. But what's more, we want you to know something. We want you to commit to being here. And we will commit to you so that we can be healthy and strong as a church, but so that you can be healthy and strong as a member of our church as well. The real problem that we've been facing over the last few decades is the diluting of God's word and the compromising of what a church actually is. We have a lot of people who come here and they say, well, I enjoy the preaching here and I enjoy the music here or I enjoy the people here. Where are you coming from? And they list some ginormous church that functions like a club or a business where the people visit and they leave. We don't do that here. And I'm not saying those churches should be ashamed for themselves. I don't pastor those churches, so that's not relevant to me. My point is, I believe that we are responsible to do it the way that God has called us to do it. And however else anybody else wants to do it, we rejoice that the gospel is being preached. But I wouldn't do it that way. You have people come and you have people go. What we're doing is digging deeper. Not only in God's word, but what it means to be Christians and what it means to be members of a fellowship. We have pastors who have turned churches into businesses, membership into customer service, and worship into little more than performance. Addressing this, a preacher of old says this, I'm afraid that we find a lot of sissy preaching in our pulpits today. The popular thing is to have a little sermonette given by a preacherette to a bunch of Christianettes. This is with little urgency. Someone has defined the average church service in a liberal church as when a mild-mannered man gets up before a group of mild-mannered people and urges them to be more mild-mannered. It makes me nauseous. Not only because it's completely against my personality, but I believe it's against the Word of God. Friends, remember what we see with Jesus and the apostles as they do ministry. They were in the world, but they were not of it. When they represented Christ, when they represented God's truth to the people, sometimes it was received, but a lot of times 
It was rejected, and there was persecution. Friends, this is not what it means to be in the world, but not of it. Under the leadership that God has established priests in the Old Testament and pastors in the New Testament, God is calling his people to live holy lives in the midst of unholiness. Righteous lives in the midst of unrighteousness and godly lives in the midst of ungodliness. If you aren't cut out for that, you're not cut out for membership here. We are sold out to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We are sold out to being the best Christian that we can be. Through God's strength and God's grace, all of us together. Amen? Third, what were they to have? This closes the section, basically addresses the issue of property and possessions. In other words, what were the priests to earn, possess, and so on? Plainly speaking, they were to dedicate their lives to God and live off of the offerings that the people brought in the community in accordance with God's law. That's what the Levites lived off. So the people brought their sacrifices and their grain offerings and their wine offerings and their etc., etc., etc. And this is what the payment was for the Levites. They were not to work other jobs. They were to work this all the time, and that's it. To the extent that even if a priest feels led to go to another town and he has sold property so that he owns more than the other priest does, he is not to receive less in payment than the other priest does. He is to receive, it says in verse 8, equal portions. Equal portions besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony, which is to say his inheritance or anything that he has sold, that would be his patrimony. Whatever he has, you don't reduce what he makes because of what he has because it isn't an issue of what he possesses. It's an issue of what he is representing and what he is doing. He is dedicating himself full-time to the function of the ministry and the work of God. This is what Jesus means in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. In Luke chapter 10, verse 7, when Jesus says, a laborer is worthy of his wages. Or what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, when he says, let the pastor who rules well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the first point that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 18 has to do with the priests of the Lord. Now, let's pivot and look at the second portion, which is the people of the Lord. We've looked at the priests of the Lord. Now, let's finish this morning with verses 9 through 14 and look at the people of the Lord. Let's read this one more time together, if you don't mind. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or his daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, a sorcerer or a character or medium, charmer or medium, a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. There are consequences to this behavior. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for... These nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you 
to do this. Second, we talked about the priests of the Lord, and now we're going to talk about the people of the Lord, and with it, the expectation that the Lord has of his people when it comes to how they should live in the world, but not what? But not of it. Now, before we get to that, I want to talk to you about a book that was written by Richard Niebuhr that was called Christ and Culture. In this book, Christ and Culture, Niebuhr explains the different options that we have when it comes to Christ and culture. He essentially offers six options. We're not going to go through six options this morning. To keep it simple, what I'm going to say is this. If the culture, if the culture represents that which is outside of the church, outside of godly biblical ethics, then we can't consider culture equal to Christ. That's liberal theology. Liberal theology says, look at all the Christ that we find in culture. That's, that, in my opinion, is not what we see taught in the Bible. We have to use our influence in Christ to preach the gospel to the culture to redeem the lost. Now, that doesn't mean that nothing at all can be done in the culture. It doesn't mean that you can't go get a sandwich at the sandbar or whatever. But what we do need to realize is while we're not living as hermits and monks, we don't see hermits and monks in the New Testament either, when we go out into public, we are not one of the public. We're Christians. We're in it, but not of it. We have to be living our lives with this in mind all the time. We are distinct from the world, different from the world. And I'm going to say this, and I don't really care. We're better than the world. We're better than a world, not because of I'm better. Joe's not better, but Joe's redeemed. I'm in a better status than the world is. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that nothing can be enjoyed in culture. But we have to be very careful about equating the things that we enjoy in culture with Christ. Christ must always be preeminent. Now, having said that, let me give to you three options that you have when it comes to this question of culture. We can receive, we can reject, or we can redeem. These are your options. When it comes to things in the culture, you have three options. You can receive it, you can reject it, or you can redeem it. Say amen if you're listening. Number one, you can receive it. Now, we can receive things that aren't sinful or wrong. Things that aren't sinful or wrong in the eyes of God or as it's taught in the Bible can be received. Now, you ask me, well, what can be received then? What's not wrong in the eye? Ah, good question. You got to know your book. You got to know the Bible. If you don't know the Bible, then you you won't know the answer to that question. Now, God has given us our conscience, and, and he has written his law on our hearts the Bible says. So that means that you've got a pretty good idea of what is right and what is wrong, okay? But the essential thing is this. When it comes to things like common grace to men and women that God has given to everyone indiscriminately, we can receive some things. Secondly, however, we have to reject some things in culture. And by reject, I mean this. We must reject things that are sinful and wrong in the eyes of God and as they are taught in the Bible. And thirdly, we can redeem some things. And by that, I mean we can redeem things that the world uses 
for their use for the glory of God. Now, I always wonder about redeem because it used to be early, early on when the church was living in a powerful posture and position that the world would look at the church and then copy the church. And now the church looks at the world and copies the world. Isn't it funny when you go to churches and you're like, this church is cooler than that club I went to last night. There needs to be some distinguishing marks in the church, I believe. There's nothing wrong with coffee. There's nothing wrong with lights. But it gets to a point when you realize that there's no difference between the concert I went to last night and worship on Sunday morning. Can we redeem things that are used for the ungodly to use them for God? Well, yes, of course. But we've got to question whether or not we're redeeming the right things and for the right purposes. Why are we redeeming these things? So you've got three options when it comes to culture. And this is something I think that is a paradigm that's helpful. Do you receive it? It's okay. It's not sinful. I can do it. Do you reject it outright? Or do you redeem it? Now, in this text, Moses is explicit. He describes a handful of ways in which the people are not to learn from the nations. In this instance, they are not to receive it, and they are not to redeem it. They are to what? Reject it. They are to reject it. This is not a negotiable point, church. You are not to negotiate on these. God does not say, if you find a way to do, no. These are items on a list that are not receivable or redeemable. They are to be rejected out of hand. Rejected out of hand. Well, what are the items on this list? Let me list them for you. First of all, first of all, they aren't to sacrifice their children. The people of faith, the people of God, under the leadership of the priests of God, as they learn and participate in the feasts and festivals, and they learn that they're in the world and not of it, and there's a group of people who do things completely different than them, they are not to receive what that group of people do. They are not to redeem what that group of people do. They are to reject it out of hand. And here's the list, the first of which is, you are not to sacrifice your children. Now, you say, Joe, the Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. That's true. Psalm 127, verse 4 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. They are to be cherished. They are to be loved and properly raised, the Apostle Paul says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in Ephesians 6, 4. This is what we believe. But some people would say, we don't sacrifice children anymore. Sure we do. People sacrifice their children every day in this country. They sacrifice their children for their own convenience. They sacrifice their children for their own career. And they sacrifice their children for their own calendar. I'm just not ready. Of course, this is complicated by the fact that we keep postponing marriage. For what, I don't know. The reality of the matter is this. There are a lot of reasons people give for something like abortion, and not one of them is legitimate. When it comes to the word of God, you don't sacrifice children, period, the end. 
We have a lot of Christians who are running around who are voting for a leeway on this issue. This is not an American issue. This is a moral issue. This is a biblical issue. And you must stand for life. This is God's word. You do not sacrifice children. Period. The end. You don't sacrifice children. You don't do it for any reason. Because children are a heritage from the Lord. And that's what the nations do. This is not what Christians do. If we are to honor the Lord by being obedient to this text, then the first item on this enumerated list is this. We must be adamant about protecting children. In the womb and out. Because we've got these fools in the government right now talking about your children are not your children. They belong to the community. No! Absolutely not! Our kids belong to us. Our kids belong to us. Some of you need to get fired up about this issue. You're sending your kids anywhere and everywhere and you're hoping, you're hoping that they don't get compromised. You are responsible for your children. If you let the administration that's in place or any administration and the government that trickles down from the administration to be in charge of your children, you will get what you ask for. You will reap what you sow. Your children are your responsibility. They're no one else's responsibility. I don't see a verse in Ephesians that says, parents, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and, and, and trust the government. That is stupidness. If you want a confused, unsure, uncertain child or teenager who lacks conviction and clarity about what is right and wrong or whether or not they're even a boy or a girl, trust your child to the government. They will be more than happy to ruin your future and theirs. But they're so unsure about whether or not they will be able to get to your children. And they are so certain about the positive influence a loving father and mother can have on their children that sometimes they want to get to the children before they're even born. Because Satan hates your children. This is not a political issue. Satan hates your children. And if he can blow your family apart and compromise the church in the process, then he'll do that. He'll love to do that. He'd be more than happy to do that. We have this scripture in place. Children are a heritage from the Lord. In Mark chapter 10, the kids come to Jesus, and Jesus puts his hands on them. He hugs them, and he blesses them. He prays for them. That is the mode of operation we should have when it comes to children. So emphatic is it that Jesus, excuse me, that God says when the people go into the nation, they say, you see what they're doing? Yeah, you can't do that. You will have absolutely nothing to do that. If you're going to be my people, you love and you cherish your children. The second issue on this itemized list is this. We are not to tolerate worldly religion. We are not to tolerate worldly religion. Again, we're not receiving it. We're not redeeming it. This is rejection outright. We are not to practice or tolerate worldly religion. In this instance, the text 
List a few things. Divination, fortune-telling, omen interpretations, sorcery, using charms or mediums, or necromancers who are people who supposedly can speak to the dead. Listen, I bump into people all the time, and you may be among them. I hope not. If you are, though, stop. Who believe, for some reason, I don't know what, that the the gaseous orbs burning 4.24 light years away has something to say about your destiny. It's called a horoscope. Oh, you know why you do that? Why? Because you're a Leo. Oh, shut up. Oh, come on, man. Are you serious? You mean I behave this way because I was born in July? Is this how shallow we are? Is this how shallow we've become? The answer is yes. You won't read your Bible. We've got more Bibles than we've ever had, and we believe the Miami Herald. It's because you're a Gemini. <laughs> you disagree with that because you're a Gemini, or you're a Cancer, or whatever, whatever nonsense. It's stupid. It's stupid. Listen, your destiny is found in Christ, not in the stars. He put the stars there. Psalm 8 says, when I look at the stars and your universe, the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? Church, you are the amazing thing, not the universe. God made you the crowning act, and you are to worship him. You are to look at the gaseous orbs burning light years from here and go, I wonder what the universe wants for me. This new age mentality has infected everything. It's infected what we believe, how we believe it, who we should follow. Listen, I find it very interesting when people who supposedly are Christians turn on Oprah or Dr. Phil because some person who speaks to dead people is on, and they go, this is so interesting. And I'm like, you, you're infatuated. You are interested with someone who supposedly speaks to dead people, and Jesus Christ is alive, and you won't pray and read the book. In the world, but not of it. If we say we're Christians, but our lifestyle, our philosophy, our thought, our behavior reflects better the culture than it does Christ, we have a problem. Put the newspaper down. You don't need to drive up to South Miami to have some crazy person put down cards, tell you if you're a joker or you got money coming in for some reason. You don't need to know the horoscope or the tarot cards or whoever is supposed to be talking to some dead person. What you need is Jesus Christ and the word of God. This is not redeemable. It's wrong. This is not receivable. It's wrong. Reject it out of hand. And if anybody comes to you and says, oh, but, 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 no, there's no buts to this. God's word is emphatic about this. So when you go home today and you find your elephants with the dollar in the mouth, just throw it out. You have your candles with whoever's emblem is on it that you light when you're having a stomach ache, throw it away. 
If your kid has a final coming up and you put on your black beads and your, you know, your, your, your santos, throw it out. No more! It's an abomination! It's not negotiable! You want to have someone empower you, inspire you, guide you, and make you capable of all things that you never thought you'd... Then his name is Jesus Christ. We are not to be reflecting and repeating what we see in the culture when God has said no. The third thing that we see in this list is this. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. In other words, we are to be, let's just use a general term, righteous. We are to do things right. We're to speak it right. We're to live it right. We're to act right. That's what Christians do. Paul, sorry. God says in Deuteronomy, you are to be blameless. This, re- this, this sounds very similar to what Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, you shall be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. Now listen, church, you know why that's our standard, right? It doesn't work any other way. Think about it like this. Imagine for a second if Jesus said, you shall be mediocre because your Father in heaven is Mediocre. You shall be okay sometimes because your Father in heaven is okay sometimes. This is ridiculous, isn't it? Our standard is perfection, blamelessness, and righteousness. Why? Because our God is holy, holy, holy. And any other standard or expectation from Him to us would be wrong. Each and every day, each and every moment, as God's children through the adoption that is ours in Christ Jesus, we should be aiming and striving in his strength and in his grace to bring him glory in all that we say, in all that we do. Church, let me kind of close with this. Don't underestimate the influence that you have in people's lives. I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about this fact. Do not underestimate the influence that you have in people's lives. Sometimes we sell ourselves short. You know, it's third down and eight. We send out special teams. We punt. We're not even going to try. But we do that because our mentality is reflecting the fact that we don't believe we are as influential as we are. You're wrong. You have a greater influence in people's lives than you realize. I hear it all the time. People say, well, they won't listen to me. Or they'll say, I'm not smart enough. Or they'll say, I don't really think I have that much of an influence of people around me. But the truth is, God in his infinite wisdom and mercy has decided to do world-changing things through you and me. He's not sending the angels. He has entrusted us with this important message of Jesus Christ. I love what D.T. Niles said years ago. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where he can find bread. That's all it is, guys. 
That's all it is. You say, hey, man, I, I can, all I can do is tell you Jesus Christ has made a difference in my life. And I believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. And they can go, but were there dinosaurs on the ark? But what about this new Netflix documentary that's come out about the three bones that they found in a cave and Polly plastered the rest so that it looks like a monkey? What about that one? You don't have to have an answer for everything. What you need to do is have the answer to this issue, which is if you find a problem with Jesus Christ, then we can talk. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I don't know how many dinosaurs were on the ark. I don't know how many angels can fit through a door simultaneously. There's so many, so many crazy questions. The only question that needs a firm and emphatic answer is this. Jesus Christ died for sinners. And if you believe in him, you will be saved. You don't have to have all the answers, friends. You need to realize that the strength is not yours. It comes from the Lord. I quoted John earlier. Let me quote him again. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to us? Are you listening to the word? To close, let me say this. We are in the world, but we are not to be of it. God has established leadership for us to follow. In the Old Testament, it was priests. In the New Testament, it is pastors. And what's more, there is an expectation of our lifestyle, of our words, of our faith. There are some things that we can receive, some things that we must reject, and some things that we might redeem. But at the end of the day, we must know this. God has an expectation of his people. And while we are in the world, we are not to be of it. Amen? Amen. 